Seattle Sucks podcast, the podcast about hating your co-host. <laughs> uh, we're on take three so far, but we have an action-packed show with you today. I'm on my boat with uh, Greg, and we have a, a lot of exciting things to bring you in what is a, a little bit of a long episode, but I think a good one. Yeah, probably a bit of a long one. I'm on Brian's manufactured home, not a boat. Uh, <laughs> it's and, about for the land. <laughs> and yes, later in the episode, we are going to talk about uh, what we know about the chop being cleared this morning, about the march on Jenny's house, which we attended Sunday night, and about the uh, turn Jenny has taken. Uh, for better, for worse, you'll have to listen and find out. We're going to read the absolutely fucking unhinged letter she wrote to the council uh, demanding they expel uh, three times elected councilperson Shama Swant uh, from that body. Um, it's fucking hilarious. And we to talk about all that, we've got our uh, friend of the show, our comrade Munya. Uh, he was one of the organizers of the march on Sunday. We saw a lot of you there, uh, and that was, uh, that was fun. Um, we're going to talk about all of that uh, wild shit. But first... But first, we have a wonderful interview with the fantastic Sheree Lascelles. Uh, Sheree is running for the 43rd LD in the uh, state legislature, uh, which covers basically south of Capitol Hill to north up around Green Lake-ish, uh, an area of the city where not much ever goes on and nothing exciting has been happening for weeks. But, you know, we're hoping that, you know, maybe a, a spark gets started that could, uh, uh, you know, push Sheree to knock out Frank uh, Pork Chop, who is a beloved barbershop quartet singer in this city, as well as General <laughs> Roustabout, but also awful, awful assemblyman for over two decades in the state assembly, so, uh, or the state legislature. So fuck him. And, uh, you know, check out this amazing interview with Sheree where we talk about depolicing and housing. Uh, make sure you check out Sheree's website and uh, how you can help with Sheree's campaign. All right, so without further ado... Yeah, here's here's, here's, uh, here's us talking to Sheree. Friends, comrades, everyone, we are utterly honored to be joined by... Oh, man, I see now. I didn't... See? We this were laughing so much about before. it. We were laughing about it because, because, because now I'm like so before. paranoid. Yep. Yeah, we uh, ourselves. <laughs> Lascelles. Yeah, Sheree Lascelles. Lascelles. Okay. Okay. I'm the worst. But like we I are... said before you were recording, if you were to ask my <laughs> now deceased grandfather, yep. who lived in upstate New York, uh, Lascelles. But uh, I've never used that pronunciation. Okay. Uh, it should be Sheree Lascelles Lascelles. <laughs> you know what? I wouldn't mind a new middle name, honestly. <laughs> there we go. Okay. We're. Honored to be joined by Sheree Lascelles, candidate for Washington State Rep in the 43rd. Sheree is a longtime renter in the 43rd and has long been a tireless organizer and advocate in and for their communities. They're a founder of People of Color Sex Worker Outreach Program, an advocacy and community building organization for sex workers of color, as well as Greenlight Project, which provides direct outreach and harm reduction at the intersection of sex work and drug use. More recently, you may have heard about the hand sanitizer factory Sheree built with some comrades to provide Seattle sex workers um, when the pandemic hit. Or maybe you had the privilege, as I have, of hearing them speak on the steps of City Hall or at another march or teach-in over the last month in support of Black Lives and the demands to defund 
uh, SPD, reinvest, and release. Um, Sheree, thank you so much for being here with us. As the world changes, as needs arise, uh, you are there doing something new and vital in your community at every turn. My first question is, why do we elect people to public office who are not like you? <laughs> Here's the problem with that question. Um, I've been asking myself the same thing. But I think uh, we've had a lot of conversations in organizing circles and, you know, with the teams uh, for my projects and people that are on the ground need, are needed on the ground and they make it really in- inaccessible to be part of that process. I mean, there's you know, a million ways how they do that. But first and foremost, um, financial stability is something people tell you you need to have in order to be an elected official or to run a campaign. Um, and they're not necessarily wrong, um, but their metrics of what a campaign looks like requires an exorbitant amount of money. And either you have to have, you know, independent wealth or you have to have a lot of friends that are going to back you up on that with independent wealth. Yeah. The Rolodex test. Yeah. And it, um, interestingly enough, I, I, I too have a Rolodex accidentally just from my community work, but Mm -hmm. there's no way I would invoke that at a time like this, um, when I could be leveraging that you know, to change the material needs, like material conditions of my community. Yeah. And that's been, I've been calling it the Sophie's choice of my day-to-day life these last few months. Um, since I announced my campaign, mm-hmm. that's when, you know, the, the pandemic became like public knowledge and the shutdown started and it was every single day. Do I do this thing that would be traditionally done on a campaign or do I do this thing that will immediately affect someone's life right now today? And the other access things they do is, you know, the rhetoric or the jargon around it is it's not like there's a published glossary unless you've gone to school for policy or you have a consultant that's going to brain dump uh, and train you up. And so people that have access to the type of education that we see as necessary to govern um, also have resources. (laughs) So it comes back to money again um, or networking and being part of a, you know, a group of people that... um, the systems were made for already in order to you know, be, be put up on that pedestal and anointed to be the one to run. And I unfortunately didn't have any of those things. So it's a, it was a daily struggle. And the, so the, it's a long, long, long answer, obviously, but I ask the same exact question every single day. And also I think, why not? Why, why don't we do this more often and why don't we do it differently? And we don't, why don't we have campaigns that spend a lot less money mm-hmm. um, and do work in the community instead of, uh, spend all their money putting their face on things everywhere <laughs> yeah. or their name on things everywhere. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I wish I had the answer. I guess we'll find out uh, after this primary. Well, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I hope we find out that, um, that you're, when you are elected, I hope we find out that yours, uh, your campaign is a model for making this choice, navigating uh, these choices. Um, and when you're going up against uh the a class of wealthy connected people i you have to form a class of your own and i think it's yeah i i hope to be if we ever get to knock on doors uh i hope to be out there in the 43rd knocking for you or or uh volunteering in some other way and i think that it must i think we'll find that that's what it takes it takes people instead of money um hopefully the joke is it always did yeah um and like you know another uh candidate from last year uh, melissa hall said many times to me and and publicly you really can't 
pay anyone any amount of money to give a fuck. They already have to give a fuck. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, and that's the most precious and limited resource we have is people giving a fuck. And the only way to, you know, uncover what people care about is to actually connect with them, not try to just throw money at them to make them care about what you care about. Um, so I care about what they care about. And then I'm able to actually change their circumstances as well as learn about policies that directly impact them and why we need to have representation, you know, in the House of Representatives or in the City Council or in the King County Council uh, that can reflect those needs of the community and actually make effective change. Like I say, I hope uh, you and your campaign can be a model for exactly that in the 43rd. Um, so, yeah, you're running in the 43rd, which has um, been uh, represented uh, for uh, an extraordinarily long time by Frank Porkchop, uh, <laughs> who uh, was the Speaker of the House from 2002 to last year when he sort of stepped down from that, but he's he's running again. Um, basically, you know, the 43rd is thought of as one of the more, as, you know, the one of the most, if not the most progressive district in the state, has, you know, very active um, and progressive uh, Democratic Party organization, I think the key word in that is thought of. Yeah, well, it's in uh, in uh, on the scale of progressive Seattle, um, which is something you know we try to navigate a lot on here. Uh, it is thought of as this very sort of progressive bastion, and um, you know we can talk about more about what uh, sort of what electing you over Chop would uh, change about that. Um, but first, um, tell us. Uh, and our listeners about yourself for those who don't know, or for some reason, get all their information on this podcast. Like what has brought <laughs> you here to this point of being a leader in your communities and, um, uh, running for the 43rd. Uh, the, the interesting quick answer for that is a lot of failures. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, uh, really, oh, honestly, yeah. um, uh, today, actually, I don't know when you're going to release this, but, uh, just putting out there, we're recording on July 1st. Um, today actually marks the 10 year anniversary of me moving to Seattle. Oh, mm -hmm. um, quite literally. Uh, and in the same exact house. Congratulations with a question mark. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it's weird too. Cause at midnight I, I like quite literally posted like, you know, happy 10 year anniversary to the love of my life. And that was Seattle. Um, I saw it as this like bastion of safety for people with, you know, a different lifestyle, um, people of color. Um, I'm, I'm queer and grew up in Eastern Washington and I'm obviously not white. Um, so that was difficult. And when I moved here, I really thought that I would be able to escape a lot of the harm and danger that, you know, was in my daily life because of, you know, white supremacy, um, and just bigotry in general. And I came here thinking, you know, either I'm going to die or thrive um, I met some amazing people, uh, but that 10 years has also been full of a lot of sorrow and failure and realizing that there isn't one safe city for, uh, people like me and there's still so much work to be done, mm -hmm. but I really thought it was going to be the, the spot for me and it was going to be easy and it was not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's sort of a, a common experience, right? That there is no uh, bastion away from struggle, right? You know, uh, there's there's no safe place, right? No, especially when you're a black queer femme. Mm -hmm. um, that's just, I mean, unfortunately, the least loved and least safe, safe, you know, demographics to be in this country. 
I learned what microaggression was when I first moved here. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah. um, I was so used to direct in my face, being called everything in the book and moved here. And it took months to just realize that I, I was feeling gaslit. I uh, didn't even know the term yet, but at first I was like, why does everyone say one thing, but totally do the opposite? And it was, <laughs> it took, it was a learning curve. Um, <clears throat> so I got really involved in, you know, supporting the punk community and, you know, throwing shows and fundraisers and events and worked my way up through some jobs to make a decent amount of money and then reinvest that into, you know, what I cared about in the community and what the community needed. Um, took people into my home and tried to make sure that everyone had a you know safe place to stay or crash if they needed to and was fed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I didn't even know at the time that that would be considered harm reduction. Uh, but it's just how I've always lived my life through mutual aid and community care and harm reduction. And um, people were able to put words to it eventually. Um, so I just kept growing, you know, that mentality and my efforts in the community. Um, and this is, this is where it led me. Um, that it's, it's really that simple. And I, I wish it was, I don't know, some heroic story, but I've been doing, doing this kind of work forever. Um, I just was able to start, you know, translating that into uh, consulting on policy and writing policy and making changes that actually affect those same communities. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's been the only difference is being self-taught in how to navigate local system and civic engagement um, without all the pieces of paper that they tell you you need to have to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think, uh, you know, I would say non-native Seattleite, and I think I intellectually knew what the term passive aggressive meant. And then I moved here and I actually learned what it meant, but uh, it's, it's an interesting place. Um, yeah. I mean, speaking of like, you know, hanging out in the punk community and as somebody who, uh, uh, you know, uh, used to hang out in squats and stuff myself, you know, right at the top of your sort of issues, right? You have housing and, you know, uh, Seattle is this fascinating place where you can walk by, you know, $8 million houses that have, uh, you know, in this house, we believe sign. And then, (laughs) you know, uh, not that far down the road, you have, you know, homeless, you know, just a large homeless population, giant tent encampments and things like that, that coexist with the richest man in human history, right? Two of the richest men in human history living in the same city. Um, So, uh, you know, what the fuck is going on with housing here? And uh, how how are you going to help us? (laughs) I mean, you're laughing. And you know what? You kind of have to. Um, The level of cognitive dissonance that has to be Mm -hmm. occurring to be in a city with the most wealth probably in the, the United States and simultaneously one of the largest epidemics of people experiencing homelessness is... Uh, apologies, but for lack of a better term, literally a mind fuck. Mm-hmm. Um, I yeah, was homeless yeah. in high school and after high school and have lived in shelters in Eastern Washington um, or like just literally couch surfing or sleeping on the dorm room floors and my friends at Gonzaga. Like I've been there mm-hmm. and there wasn't any competent services for, you know, my demographics or for the situation that I was in because it, it was so rare. You know, they always tell you that the people that end up in those situations are the ones that, you know, had either you know issues with uh drug use or that um just were obstinate in general um or didn't have any other opportunities in life um but you know aptitude was never the issue for me <laughs> it was mm-hmm. just circumstances um yeah and that's so true of so many people here and now that i do direct services to you know sex workers drug users and people experiencing homelessness on a daily basis it's just becoming more glaringly obvious that it's just a lack of education and a lack of um, people being able to translate their, you know, intentional 
you know, thoughts about compassion and what it means into action. Um, so it's really just not a matter of people not wanting to do something. It's just like, we don't give them the tools to change the circumstances of their neighbors that are outside. Uh, mm-hmm. And we, we talk about it all the time. We invoke the name of the people that are experiencing homelessness or these circumstances that are probably all caused by institutional failures and institutional racism and white supremacy. And then we, we, we just put a sign up and say, yeah, we care, but you can't come in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I did the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll continue to do the opposite. Like it, 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 this is not part of the campaign. This is just who I am on a daily basis. Uh, it's not always pretty. It's not always, um, comfortable it -hmm. just is because i was there before i moved here and i don't want to go back but i also want to make sure that fewer people end up in that situation and as many people as we can help get out of those situations we do and we try we don't just talk about it um it's funny that you say that you knew intellectually like intellectually what passive aggressive meant um before we moved here but we see it at this level that is i've never seen before um, mm-hmm. I also used to say all the time, like, I'm trying to fit in, but I'm really too direct. And I've been looking for a class on how to become passive aggressive, but FAFSA doesn't cover it. So I'm not yeah. going to be able to do that. Yeah. Well, if you haven't learned it in 10 years in Seattle, I'm sorry. It's just not, it's just not going to happen. Yeah, it's not in me. Uh, no. <clears throat> like at all. <laughs> which no. is, which people now just decide it's equated to being rude. Like I'm, I'm now mm-hmm. you know have access to these circles of people that um placate professionally yeah and it's still confusing to them that i don't uh, essentially quote unquote play by those rules it's just not part of my makeup mm-hmm. to to see something and not say something mm-hmm. yeah and i mean uh particularly when it comes to these sort of underserved communities uh you know it'd be nice to have somebody that actually just said what they fucking meant for a change <laughs> you know uh, part of the reason why you can have the sort of opulent wealth in Seattle right next to tent cities and things like that is, you know, the mealy-mouthed horseshit that our politicians feed us every day, right? Um, that doesn't mean anything, just piles of gobbledygook, right? That don't mean anything. Uh, be nice to have somebody actually said the things they meant for a change. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Can you tell us... Uh, Maybe a little more specifically about some of the work you've done, like, for example, um, telling our listeners about um, PoxWap and Greenlight Project. That's a hard one. Some of the most important work that we do is not something that's for public consumption uh, because the safety of, you know, participants in our programming is, you know, our first mission statement is protecting that. So Mm -hmm. uh, in general, we provide you know, advocacy and education, um, and, you know, policy assistance for, uh, the, you know, for unlaws that will affect the black and brown sex worker community. Um, and that's the, the easiest way to put it. Um, then when it comes to green light project, uh, we're a harm reduction and community care org. It's uh, essentially a community health care worker model. So anything that is necessary to improve the material circumstances of a participant, um, to, try to ensure a safer environment for them or a safer um, existence for them is what we do, Um, which sounds so vague and like I'm Mm -hmm. avoiding the question, but the joke is not everyone needs the exact same things for harm reduction and Mm -hmm. for safety. And it's all bespoke. Yeah. And (laughs) that's what makes it so hard to not only translate, but also so hard to educate the population on um, that doesn't experience the same things. Yeah, and that's that's a kind of or a level of assistance or harm reduction that 
larger institutions and certainly the state and city, you know, are not willing or able to, uh, to provide. Correct. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the safety concerns that we, you know, see on a daily basis revolve 100% around their proximity to uh, law enforcement. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And law enforcement's presence does not, you know, give them any higher level of safety, in fact, causes less safety. Um, So it it is a case by case basis. But this is a lot of where um, my passion for the, you know, defund SPD campaign with reinvestment into community um, comes from and why PoxWap has been a part of Decriminalize Seattle since its inception in October of last year mm-hmm. for the 2020, you know, seated council budget uh, mm. process is that <laughs> the we keep us safe is uh, very true. It's not uh, hypothetical. It's not a, oh, you know, if you do this, then we will be able to do this. It's we already do this. That's how we've survived. Mm-hmm. This money that's going into more cops is not what's going to make things better. Putting that same exact money goes a lot farther in the community when we have the ear of the people that it affects um, and know exactly what, you know, they need because they tell us. Mm-hmm. They're not going to tell the cops or any elected official that they don't have a personal connection with what really would change, you know, their safety. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, uh, that may transition to talking about SESTA-FOSTA a little bit because it ties into all of this, right? You know, you're calling for an end to SESTA-FOSTA. First off, what is SESTA-FOSTA and why is it bad? Because I had a lot of movie actors and stuff on TV tell me it was good. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, so uh, the, the laws, were, there were originally two laws and they decided to mash them together, kind of log roll them together. Mm-hmm. And their titles are pretty misleading um, and also probably why most of the um, representatives from our states have, you know, agreed to them and why it got passed in the first place. Uh, but essentially they were built under the guise of being able to stop um, trafficking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also allows for the conflation of um, trafficking with all sex work, even consensual sex work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's so many things in those laws. Um, but, you know, namely being able to hold websites or businesses accountable for anything uh, illegal that happens on their website or through their website or because of something on their website um, around sex work or sex trafficking. And by doing that, you're, you're quite literally uh, violating the First Amendment of being able to have free speech on, you know, community platforms on the Internet. Um, but it also changes the charges for um, different types of uh, assistance to sex workers in general and conflates all individuals in the nexus of someone doing sex work with someone who is promoting prostitution or trafficking, which is a classy felony now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that makes it really, really dangerous for people that are doing consensual sex work because they pretty much would have to work 100% alone without ever communicating with anyone where they are or what they're doing. And puts themselves in a situation where something could go a lot worse for them without having that community support or a lifeline or, you know, a secure ride somewhere. Um, mm-hmm. So it, it, it over-polices, you know, free speech to the point of us being in more dangerous situations because they're over-policing our autonomy and agency and how we use our bodies. Yeah, and, you know what you'd said earlier that like, you know, part of why your uh, work, it has to be like, you know, bespoke, right. Is that people are in different positions, right. People are in, you know, sex work for a lot of different reasons. 
and the danger of uh, like Sesta Foster Rise, it collapses all of that into the sort of boogeyman of trafficking and demands a law enforcement solution, right? Uh, Therefore, putting all these people who are already vulnerable in the, uh, you know, uh, embrace of the police, right? And we've seen what happens with that, right? Yeah, well, we've seen, I mean, we know that, uh, you know, the most dangerous thing for any anybody, certainly any vulnerable community, is to have contact with the police. So last week here in Seattle, uh, the council unanimously passed a repeal of the misdemeanor drug and prostitution loitering laws. Um, yeah. Just absolutely <laughs> uh, despicable uh, laws that are, you know, all over the country. I, it seems like it will, because they passed it unanimously, um, eventually um, make its way into effect but um i think that remains to be seen but can you you know to bring it locally um these laws basically say that they criminalize quote loitering when you're suspicious uh if a cop can say basically uh, you look like you might i think you look like you might be standing around existing somewhere in connection to a uh drug or sex work crime uh, quote unquote yeah. crime, you know, things that, sh- that shouldn't be uh, criminalized anyway. But now even just like these laws in the starting in the 90s and including here gave power to cops to just basically round up and persecute um, any anybody they want to uh, using these using these bullshit uh, loitering laws. Can you talk about what you think uh, what do you think this repeal means? I mean, I think obviously on its face, it is good. Um, but like how that will affect uh, local communities here, if this uh, does in fact go through. It's it's so little. Yeah. I mean, it's so huge, but it's also so little. Like it's one of the first times it's ever happened in the United States. Mm-hmm. But uh, imagine that they'll try to pass something else to replace it. Um, but mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. it goes back to like kind of my, my mission statements about protecting autonomy and agency at all costs. And if someone's not even allowed to have their body outside, take up any space or just exist in this city, then we have literally no business saying that we're progressive in any sense of the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, not a lot of us have choices whether we're outside or not. One, first and foremost, how can we care about the homelessness crisis and then also have laws that criminalize people being outside? It's, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, if it does take effect in the way that they say that they intend it to take effect, what it's going to allow for people to do is breathe since people aren't always outside of their own choice, uh, being outside and having to worry about law enforcement when you're worrying about surviving in general uh, is, is a big weight off people's shoulder, shoulders. But it also will allow them to start advocating for themselves in ways that no one's ever been able to do before in the city since it passed in the 90s. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, it goes right back to how law enforcement doesn't know what communities need and doesn't know how to keep them safe, but they know themselves how to keep themselves safe. So being able to advocate for themselves and actually have those conversations with trusted community partners on the next steps um, to you know escalate us, you know, working with them to create better lasting changes in their lives. Um, they'll be free to talk a little bit more about what they've been experiencing and what they need and how to achieve it and talk a little bit more about maybe uh, the next steps of getting people's you know records re- removed for having this on them previously yeah. mm-hmm. um, and that's 
you know, a huge burden lifted off someone if they wanted to, you know, seek housing or if they wanted to seek other types of employment or if they wanted to start advocating for themselves or doing work in their community also um, in the same way we do. Uh, so it, it could mean a lot of things, but at the same time, it's such small potatoes that I, I want to challenge, you know, the city to do quite a bit more as soon as possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, I really, I I mean, that sounds like a really good avenue for ev- advocacy, um, striking these charges off people's records. Uh, it does seem like a good symbolic gesture. But yeah, I think what we've talked about is a worry um, that it's really just taking like, it's one just dis- really despicable, like really naked tool that the cops have to hassle anybody. But it's really just one tool. And the truth yep. is, like, everything is illegal in America. So that police have a tool to use against you when they want to fuck with you. And this was one, these were big tools that they had that were very broad, but not only do they have other tools that they can use to fuck with people if they still want to do that, but also what these laws did over the last three decades is contributed to turning the police into what they are today. Not that they, I mean, they've always been what they are, but the specific like tool, uh, the specific attitudes they have, the specific like understanding they have of their job, which is to go out and fuck with and oppress marginalized communities. These laws like told them for the last 30 years, no, this is literally exactly what your job is. Go and ruin the lives of sex workers and poor people in black and brown communities. Um, So it's like, it's not that repealing this in this one city is going to change the cops understanding of what they're out there on the street to do. Right. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that's the, the worry is that um, it, it's such a, you know, for lack of a better term, performative gesture from city council. Um, it's not that I don't appreciate it. I mean, I fought my ass off for this for a while. I just they already know the other ways to, you know, get the community to be more safe. And you have to remove cops from it, like just yeah. plain and mm-hmm. simple. You can't just change the ordinances because they're already programmed and indoctrinated into thinking that they can just approach anyone at any time and be just in their force and harassment and violence. Yeah. This is not enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And and we've created a police state where it's down to the individual officer in that moment to make a a million like subjective judgments about what their job is and what they need to do in any given moment. And, you know, they're not going to stop doing that, which brings us to this current moment of, uh, national uprisings against, uh, police murders of, uh, black and brown people, um, and the police state in general. Um, you are, uh, to tie this sort of to your, uh, campaign for a moment, you're running against Frank chop who, uh, mutual friends of ours, Cassidy and Melissa, uh, who say hello, um, researched uh, every Washington politician and found out who's been getting the money from the cop Uh unions and cop lobbies. (laughs) And wouldn't you know, in Seattle's, (laughs) in the most progressive district in the state, the longtime Speaker of the House, uh, Frank Chop, is second only to Jay Inslee in Washington State politicians <laughs> in donations. And that's just over pork chop. No, <laughs> that's, that's uh, yeah. So pork chop, uh, as we like to call him around here, because of this, uh, has over the last ten years raked in uh, fourteen thousand dollars in campaign contributions. Of course, he's been there a lot longer than that. Um, but just in that period, he is the top uh, recipient of. Uh, cop union and other cop money and uh, just in this for this election um, is also the case now 
he was called out on that. Uh, Cassidy called him out on Twitter, and he uh, responded that he gave $1,500 to organizations in the black community and promised $500 a month uh, ongoing to repay that money back. So in two years, he will have given back all of the (laughs) cop money. Um, Of course, this election will be over by that point. Um, uh, So, you know, uh, for other background, Frank Chop, as Speaker of the House, is basically known um, for being the, you know, very progressive Democratic Speaker of the House who's most famous for uh, compromising with the Republican-controlled Senate on uh, budget bills, Uh, you know. Yeah, that's who you're up against. And in this moment, that seems really really important because, obviously, um, I've seen you out in the streets uh, speaking uh, on the steps of City Hall, as I said, and uh, elsewhere. Um, Tell us about how you see this moment, what this fight is about for you um, and where, where it's taking you and where you're going with it. Well, I I know this is a podcast, uh, but for those that don't know, I'm definitely not white. Um, Definitely black. Uh, And, and, you know, I've been here, like I said, for 10 years as of today, and he's been my representative that entire 10 years. He's also been in office since I was eight years old. (laughs) And the fact that, our law enforcement budgets have essentially doubled since then. Yeah. Uh, and people are dying at the hands either of cops or of the circumstances that they're in where cops have not been any help. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Kind of, kind of makes me wonder what took him so long. If he's going to invoke, you know, the names of the demographics that I'm a part of as who he is a champion for. Mm-hmm. And then what took him so long to realize what was the biggest risk to our lives? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it seems pretty clear that it took uh, people getting in the streets, which is what we've seen sort of with all of these small, so far very small um, concessions to the movement is uh, none of them happened uh, until a lot of people got in the streets and stayed there. And, and then said every day. Every day. Every mm-hmm. day. And that's, and that's, you know, both, you know, a call to action for community members that want to support us getting, you know, some of our rights back or getting them in the first place since we never really had them. Um, but it's also a reminder to everyone that if you are not black or brown, that we already have been in this fight for our life um, every single day since we were born, um, which is why these demonstrations have to be every day. Um, people that are just waking up to what it's like to be black in the city or in this country or in this world, they need to be out every single day in one way or the other, just like we have been out every single day just to survive. And most of us don't you know, make it in the, the most attractive ways. And some of us don't make it at all because we lose our lives in that same struggle. Mm-hmm. He has been in office for 25 years. What has he done? <laughs> What has he done until these last few weeks? He needs to do a lot more than $500 a month for the next two years, um, regardless whether he wins or not, especially if he doesn't. He needs to still be there supporting everything he claims to be about every single day Mm -hmm. for the rest of his life to make up for his inaction for the last 25 years. 
Yeah, I mean, the 500 seems like a rather cheap indulgence for a, you know, person who's held quite a bit of political power in the state, right? And is uh, the most, someone could say. Yeah, yeah, and is is wielded against, you know, these very populations. I mean, when we talk about the sort of passive aggressiveness of Seattle, I think some people are starting to learn that you you don't look at the things that your politicians tell you in a press conference when they feel forced, but you look at where the money, you know, the money they took came from, right? That that seems to be a much better predictor of what they're doing. It's trite, but really true. Mm-hmm. Like people's words are pretty much meaningless without action. So if you were mm-hmm. just going with the, you know, speeches that are rehearsed and memorized for the last decade that a politician, ha- you know, has been repeating over and over like a broken record and you don't look at their actual actions, not just on policy, but in their own community. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're, they're two different things. Yeah. So Sheree, when Spog came to you and they said, gosh, Sheree, <laughs> we're, oh. we're so we're so looking forward to your campaign. We want to give um, X amount to support you in this race against Frank Chop. Uh, I, I take it you told them no, right? Super funny. <laughs> uh, so does anyone remember the Spog event that was very controversial uh, during the city council races last year? Oh, do we ever? Yeah. Okay. So it was scheduled at the exact same time as a North Aurora uh, community council like safety meeting. Um, mm-hmm. And it felt pretty intentional at the time. Uh, and, that, you know, I was ready to go down to, you know, Spog and protest with everybody else. Um, and mm-hmm. then we thought that, you know, it seemed yeah, it just seemed really intentional. But we ended up crashing their party um, in the community that we serve, mm. and recording Hell the yeah. whole thing, um, and asking you know the important questions that our community members that couldn't go to that meeting for their safety uh, had of them. Mm. And I I actually have the full footage of that. I just haven't released it yet, and I'm oh really gosh, excited want, to oh, do that. Oh please, I so, need I need that in my life. <laughs> so the interesting thing is, yeah, like I just said, uh, what people say versus what they do especially as a politician or someone that is trying to raise awareness for um, a community that's underserved and underrepresented, uh, which is, you know, obviously it's so much worse than that. Uh, but I don't talk a lot. Um, I, I do a lot mm-hmm. and I, I'm really excited to get a lot of that evidence out there of why Spog would never approach me. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, they know how that's I the feel. difference, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. They wouldn't touch you with a 10 foot baton. Yeah. <laughs> I've never, I've never, never given off anything in my personality, <laughs> my presence, uh, my actions that could ever be contrived as pro cop in any way. <laughs> and, and I never will. Is, uh, if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. Yeah, what people don't say and won't say is also, you know, pretty indicative of where I stand on things. And they they wouldn't touch me with a 10-foot pole. They also make sure to remind me every time they have a chance that they don't know who I am. So that's pretty fun. I, well, you know what? Spock doesn't seem to have a whole lot of friends these days. So that sounds good for you. <laughs> I know. It's pretty great. It's it's I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's finally the popular opinion to not want to be involved with Spog. And I was waiting for this moment for a while. Oh yeah. man. Yeah, we all were. It feels it feels good. I hope we I hope this movement really makes some massive uh results in some massive changes. I you know, we support absolutely wholeheartedly the demands to defund SPD by fifty percent, reinvest in the community and uh release the protesters. I mean, can you can you talk to us about those demands from your perspective and like, you know, what brings you out into the streets every day? Uh, specifically in the fight here in Seattle to do exactly that? Um, Just witnessing what they are capable of and how they treat Mm -hmm. me and people like me. Um, I've 
probably never had a good experience with a cop in my whole life. And I think my first time in cuffs, I was eight or nine. Jesus. So, mm. oh yeah, yeah. If you, you want to talk about the school to prison pipeline, uh, <laughs> I, I am one of those case studies. Mm-hmm. So it comes from a, a mixture of, you know, my personal experience with law enforcement, as well as, you know, what I witness happen to my community members every time we're on outreach, uh, the harassment, the violence, um, the looking the other way when acts of violence are happening to community members and acting like it's more of an inconvenience um, than part of their duty to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the flip side of, you know, demand two, like we... We want that 50% removed from the SPD, one, to slow down the harm that they're able to cause. I mean, we talk about the job losses that are going to happen if they go forward and remove 50% of the budget, but that's kind of the point. Um, Mm -hmm. We need less law enforcement in our communities because if they're bored, they're just going to be violent. That's Mm -hmm. what they're there for. And if they have nothing to do to catch, quote unquote, the real bad guys, then they take it out on the community that doesn't have any resources because they don't mm. know anything else. Um, yeah. So on on point two of investing into black and brown communities, um, we've been able to scrape together barely anything in the last year to do the services that we do. And the amount of impact that we're able to have on a community that you can't even use the term underserved, but is not served yeah. mm-hmm. competently or directly or without barriers um, or without police having to be involved we could do a lot more with that same amount of money than they will ever be able to do with law enforcement in our communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have the data to back that up because we've already been doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when it comes to freeing the protesters, like another 31 that I know of so far mm-hmm. have been yeah, arrested as of this morning. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Why? We're all on the same page that what's happening right now is us exercising <laughs> our you know freedom of speech to be critical of, um, the institutions that have control over our lives and safety. Mm-hmm. Why would we be put in a cage where it's even less safe, especially during the global freaking pandemic? Mm-hmm. Well, we are talking about wanting to not die at the hands of these institutions. How in anyone's right mind, does that make any sense? Well, no one should have been arrested in the first place and they no. sure as heck should not be held for any length of time now that they have been. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think any cops are in their right mind, but I think they understand they have a political role. And uh, right now, that's mostly protecting their own institution. And we're basically in a war with them. So they're demonstrating their power by retaliating against protesters. And we have to demonstrate our power by being in the streets every day. And ironically, they're proving our point. Yeah. Well, like I said, they're they're kind of fucking stupid. So uh, these aren't like these are the literally the dullest tools in the shed. Uh, there is no one dumber in America than a cop. So that is at least a hopeful a hopeful sort of uh, premise to keep in mind as we engage in this sort of war for uh, black lives and the safety of our communities from this vicious police state. Your stance on these things your um the fact that the cops would uh you know never dream of uh supporting your campaign these are all things that qualify you in in my mind to represent uh the 43rd in olympia but um maybe as one of our last questions here maybe you can tell us a bit about like what you actually see um your role being there 
how do you hope to fit into that very sort of uh, one-sided framework down there? And what, how do you think you can be effective down there on, in terms of like how you pursue policy or what, you know, legislative priorities you think you'll have? Um, the same way I fit into anything, which unfortunately, uh, you know, flip side that coin is standing out. Everything that I've been able to accomplish, especially in these last couple of years, has been because I asked, why do we do things the way we're doing them if they don't serve us all? Yeah. And the answer I keep getting, and it's the answer that breaks my brain every time, is because that's how we've always done it. Mm -hmm. That's never and has never been a good enough answer for me. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not a good enough answer to the constituents that we represent when we hold elective office. Like we We just can't keep using that. We can't keep using the process, the bureaucracy, as an excuse to not help the people who are impacted by policies that don't work. And I don't think I will be alone in feeling that way when I get there, regardless of if my politics are different than everyone else on that floor. Yeah. They probably have the same feelings. And they probably got into their jobs or their line of work originally before they became electeds because they also wanted to know, why are these things not working for my community? figuring out how to navigate those systems it's so depressing it's so depressing because it's not accessible to everyone and i've been lucky enough to be able to beat it into my own brain and as many other brains as i can in proximity get to um, so that we could navigate it for ourselves because we've been left out of these conversations for so long and Mm -hmm. i think that by having that conversation of this is super inaccessible it's super difficult it's exhausting work why hasn't anyone changed it so that we can make it more accessible and make it work for everyone that it's supposed to be serving is a conversation I can have probably with anyone from any political office. Mm-hmm, they yeah. have to be feeling these same frustrations. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gone there in the first place. Whether they've made concessions in their mission statement personally to get there or not, we all started from the same place. Yeah. Well, allow, allowing for the possibility that some of them truly are just craven hacks, um, I think you've got a, mo- a model there uh, because I think, and I think we've seen this on in a number of legislators, legislatures, including nationally, where one or a small number of you know genuine radicals who are willing to say what other people aren't willing to say has a legislative impact, has an impact on the tone of the bodies and the way work gets done, and forces um people who have gone along and done things as we've always done them forces them to take positions on things they maybe have avoided taking positions on makes them uh actually you know makes them stand out a bit um yeah and i'll I'll, I'll, I'll say not to tone police but the term forces is you know uncomfortable for me i don't i don't like that um i would say in power because you know, where my platform even came from is having to navigate these, their circumstances for myself and uh, my community because no one ever gave us the tools to, to do it for ourselves. So I had to go find the tools and pass them along. And, you know, you could say um, the radicals that you're referring to, uh, namely, I imagine AOC, she sticks out. She says the things people don't say, and it empowers people across party lines to say stuff that they didn't think they had the ability to say safely. It, it's it's not forcing, it's empowering. Um, if someone puts themselves out there like that, you can't not respect that courage and then yeah. have it affect you. And I really hope that I'm able to do that for someone, regardless of whether it's going to be in the House of Representatives for Washington State. I, I seek to try to do that every single day. 
as much as I possibly can. I will say the things, not necessarily <laughs> intentionally, um, that need to be said. And then people will speak up and say, yeah, I had that same experience. Yeah, I, I feel that same way. Yeah, I'm struggling with that exact same thing. We need to be speaking up as much as we possibly can, even if we're terrified. And I'm terrified every single day that I'm going to say something that could hurt someone. But I'm terrified even more every single day that I don't say something and I could have prevented harm. Mm-hmm. And that's what every elected official should be feeling if they're going to represent yeah. so many people. Yeah, well, that is a uh, em- empowerment as a legislative model, I think is a uh, a beautiful thing. And I hope to see it happen in Olympia uh, next year. Um, it, Trey, can you tell us about how people can get involved with your campaign uh, right oh gosh. now. <laughs> this part, I keep forgetting that I'm not just having a normal conversation on my porch <laughs> with um, people that I normally have conversations with on my porch. Um, <laughs> sorry, this is the rest of your life. I, I hate, sorry. <laughs> no, it's great. I'm really happy that I forgot that I was being recorded because uh, this is the part where I get really shy because it's terrifying. Uh, like I just said, um, shreferstate.com. Um, <laughs> there's ways to donate, ways to sign up to volunteer, ways to like tap into my platform, ways to make suggestions on what you think is missing or um, if you like clarification on things. Um, but because we don't have the type of campaign model uh, of my like opponents or of like anyone in the history of ever, um, it, it, it's hard to say. And I, I really, you know, stick to the agency and autonomy model of everything. Like check your spoons, check your bandwidth. We're all going through this, you know, global pandemic, which is causing, you know, <laughs> this collective trauma. And I, I don't expect people to be able to function in a way that they uh, would normally, because this is not normal. Um, but in any way that you have a skill or a resource that you feel you could share with our campaign and the team that has been working tirelessly to keep me alive while I do so many things um, for the community, and, and this is one of those things for the community. Um, I'm really into DIY or die, you know? Uh, that, that punk background definitely it comes in handy when you don't have resources, you just have to figure it out. So if there are people out there with, you know, art backgrounds or, you know, musical backgrounds or, uh, you know, whizzes on social media for whatever reason, um, we, we need all of those things and, and we really don't have the resources to do all the things. So any help helps. Um, and, and I would be remiss and probably get yelled at by a lot of people if I didn't say, if you even have $5, please donate. We're in the last five weeks and, Yes, it's kind of this is kind of the the make or break. It's top two primary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were in a similar situation in 2017 for the mayoral race, mm-hmm. and everyone you know really spoke the right game and said the right things and said they care about X, Y, and Z, but didn't act. And now those same people are saying we wish we would have because we might not be in the situation right now if Nikita was our mayor. Yeah, and as you know, the second candidate for people's party i'm endorsed by them um awesome i'm not i'm nothing i'm not i'm not nowhere near as good as nikita in any way but i will say uh we are in a very unique position right now if we can get the support for this campaign to get it through the primary to not recreate 2017 and not recreate the 25 years of chop where nothing really happens other than uh you know sparse wins over a long period of time we can put someone that's experienced the failures of the institutions in this district into that office. So we try not to recreate any of those harms. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. So everyone, um, it's a really exciting campaign. Um, and everyone should get involved. We'll of course link to the website. Um, 
uh, like Sheree said, five weeks out, um, which means uh, ballots should be coming uh, in the next uh, couple weeks here. Yeah. Um, so if you're not registered yet, register now. Uh, ballots yeah. should be dropping uh, around the 19th, 20th, and then primary is on August 4th. And it's top two primary. There's three candidates, which means I, I, I would have to be at least in second place to make it through so that we can go to the general. Okay, well, we are in your court here, Sheree. We are really hoping this movement can get you across the line and um, eventually get you to Olympia. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, um, thank you. Take, I know you're busy. Um, it means a lot to us that uh, you came on to our stupid podcast uh, to talk about this <laughs> stuff because um, you're a really inspiring person. And um, and it, so it's uh, you know it means a lot for us just to get to talk to you. I thank you for having me. It still baffles me every day when people want to talk to me. So thank you so much for having me and seeking me out and being flexible because I never know what my days are going to be like when you're, you know, having to respond to emergent needs in the community. So oh, it is, you. it's hard to schedule anything right now because, uh, yeah, it's uh, the world changes by the minute. Um, so yeah, thanks again. Yeah. Uh, everybody that was, uh, Sheree that was Sheree L- <laughs> or Lassel. Sorry, Lassel. AKA Lassel. Lassel. Sheree Lassels. Okay. Um, thank you again. Welcome back to Seattle Sucks Podcast. All right. Uh, thanks for uh, uh, Sheree Lassel for that amazing interview. And, uh, you know, uh, we'll have the contact information for her and stuff in the show notes where you can go visit her campaign website. Please go do that. Uh, but right now we have another guest on the show i've tried to tell greg to leave he won't uh so <laughs> we brought somebody else in uh we have our good friend munya on the show how are you how are you doing today munya hey hey i'm doing pretty good how are you guys good uh, good we're we're doing good here um <clears throat> i had a wonderful thing happen to me when i woke up this morning and by this morning i mean 11 a.m. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> in that i had a text from my dad in san antonio who was saying uh, all of, he said, MSNBC says, which is how I know to just immediately begin ignoring any text from my And dad. here we go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> MSNBC says that all of Seattle is closed. Uh, and I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, yeah, the police have closed all of Seattle. Mm. Uh, and then I had 50 million text messages uh, from normal people in the city that were just saying, oh man, uh, police have retaken Cal Anderson Park. So yeah. Uh, that that situation situates us in time, right? Yeah, so that's what's have, going uh, on. It's Wednesday afternoon. Um, thanks, hey, thanks for coming on, Munya, Colonel Munya, as I think I'll <laughs> be referring to you um, uh, for the rest of the show. Um, the I, it seems uh, that starting at like five a.m. Uh, or what you said it was like four thirty-eight or something. At order four, went out. at four fifty-eight a.m. Oh man, Mayor Jenny released an emergency clear-out order for the park, and by 5 a.m., SPD was in the park. Ah, I see. So she must have been... Uh, she must have had trouble sleeping on that lumpy hotel mattress. <laughs> <laughs> um, the So I guess they came in, uh, swept the park. Uh, basically, the SPD retook the chop. Um, it seems like there have been... Uh, at least there's been over 30 arrests today. As far as last we've heard, um, they have taken and perimetered the whole area. Uh, other crews are in there 
basically, I think, removing the barricades and trashing remaining tents and belongings of people who were uh, residents there, as well as all of the sort of uh, co-op and medic supplies and tents and all that kind of thing. Um, that seems to have been going on all morning now into the afternoon. Um, yeah, a bunch of people arrested. Uh Getting reports. So I just saw from SPD's Twitter, um, basically all morning journalists have been saying they're not being, they were forced out along with everybody else, not being allowed in. It seems like basically no one's being allowed through their perimeter without, um, hilariously enough, a, uh, yeah, according to without a local like ID, like an address in the, those blocks, which means actually even like business owners have been turned away. SPD is now, they just now tweeted out like, uh, the thing with not, you know, letting journalists, uh, into the area is just sort of a mistake that got, you know, happened in a chaotic, uh, fast moving situation, but no, no, we're, we're, uh, our public relations people are connecting people up and getting them into the area. Of course, now that, you know, the actual roundup clear out and arrests are over, seems like, uh, there is video of them using mace, um, and we've heard reports that early on they did use flashbangs early in the morning. I, I don't have a ton of confirmation on that. Um, Munyev, I mean, I don't know what else you've heard. Uh, yeah, I think you pretty much summed it up. I mean, there's a lot going on and we're kind of piecing it bits by bits right now. All that I know is I just woke up to what felt like someone like called in like a Call of Duty chopper gunner. And I just like <laughs> heard just like... Like going like mm-hmm. right as I woke up, and I'm like, oh, okay, something's happening. A lot of sirens, and um, yeah, just open up Twitter, and you can see exactly what's going on in real time. Just like a line of police, just like we kind of saw at the beginning of the month of last month, I guess now. So um, it was familiar, and it wasn't really to, to me. It really wasn't too surprising that this happened. Mm-hmm. I think the chop, in my personal opinion, I think the chop. Um, it was kind of on a uh, crash course and a decline when the city allowed, quote unquote, allowed um, a hybrid system where you can allow cars into the chop. Um, that is just yeah. a hostile move inherently and ultimately compromises the entire idea of what the chop was supposed to be, right? So mm-hmm. you, we even experienced, unfortunately, it cost lives. There was drive-by shootings that happened because of it. Um, it made it inherently less safe just because cars could go through, but also, um, you know, you can't just camp out there anymore. So um, in my opinion, that really, that move was really the nail in the coffin. And it was just a matter of time before um this happened, but I mean, I think circumstantially it is interesting. Um, the timing on how this all happened too. Yeah, it is very interesting. You know, SPD has wanted to retake their castle at the East precinct for, you know, two and a half weeks or whatever it is. Um, it seems that they're, they're now doing that. Um, I'm sure they're, you know, uh, going through with like a bomb squad looking for booby traps as we speak. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So that's fun. So they're back. They did. They came back with violence. Um, mm-hmm. And the question is, gosh, why now? And I think, you know, Lisa Herbold had that editorial in the uh, or that op ed in The Stranger yesterday, I think, about uh, sort of the failures of the city um, in relation to, like you were saying, various things that have um, made uh, the chop, you know, a potentially dangerous place for protesters. And we've seen the the various shootings 
Um, but it's also safe to say that Jenny is uh, starting to feel this movement in her own personal life. Wouldn't you say, Munya? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's a bit of a surprise um, for her to, I guess, get tipped off. Or I like to think of um, her just kind of fleeing away to a, like a Motel 6 or something um, <laughs> <laughs> and claiming she's somehow meeting with the, the Black community at um, like 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. at night on a Sunday in City Hall. Um, for some reason, um, just normal things that normal people do on a normal work schedule. Um, and I guess coincidentally, while she was just not home, um, you know, a lot of people came to her, uh, street and her neighborhood and made some noise. And I, I, it seems like that action struck a nerve and I'm not sure why. I mean, plenty of mayors have uh, experienced that before. Mike McGinn was really known to uh, actually interact with people and change his tune on stuff a lot um, because of that. And I even remember that. So it's kind of interesting how a public figure is mad that, um, you know, protests actually went to her um, historically red line neighborhood. But yeah. here we are. Well, you know, Mike McGinn's uh, address wasn't a secret. Uh-huh. It wasn't so, sealed. It wasn't sealed yeah. court documents. It wasn't. Uh, any of that. It was like well, well known. Yeah, exactly. Well, so basically what we're talking about is, uh, yeah, this engraved filigree invitation I got from Mayor Jenny <laughs> to come to a barbecue at her house and invite <laughs> um, a thousand of my friends. And, uh, you know, we turned up and she wasn't there. It's pretty crappy thing to do. You yeah, know? it's rude. It's rude, frankly. It is a bit of Seattle hospitality, though, I got to admit. That's you know, true. We- you show up with your friends and they just bolt out the back. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you, honestly, it seemed like, man, it ran, we ran into a lot of people that we knew that night. It seemed like we ran into just about everyone has ever appeared on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, every, and just tons of other comp friends and comrades were there. Um, tell us about, tell us about what it was. Tell us about, um, uh, organizing, for that, for this action, like how it came together, you know, why the choice of tactics uh, to march on the mayor's house? Yeah, yeah. Great question. So on Sunday, for those who don't know, um, we had a, we being Seattle DSA, um, put together uh, a march for accountability. And uh, the march for accountability was um, explicitly to continue um, reiterating our demands and our shared demands um, with the family of Charlena Lyles um, and other coalition partners. And I think like it was a really, really opportune moment to kind of take it up a notch. And that's what we really felt like as Seattle DSA. Um, I, I am a black man, but Seattle DSA is um, currently right now, at least a predominantly white organization. Um, we do have great uh, POC representation, but it is still predominantly white. And so we have been playing um, strategically um, as someone who is on the local elected local council, um, have been playing a uh, support role in elevating and amplifying demands and not trying to co-opt um, movements either intentionally or unintentionally. We uh, That's something that we are really, really sensitive of. And um, so, but we also need to, uh, we also thought that it was important to, um, especially in this current moment where uh, the mayor really wasn't meeting our demands and in fact um, put out an insulting budget proposal that cut 
the Seattle police by 5% uh, instead of our yeah. demand of mm-hmm. 50, which was um, just a slap in the face to everything um, our Black and Indigenous organizers have been doing um, in our community, um, to the people of the CHOP, to um, just the people of Seattle in general. And we figured we can really use one, our organization, we have over um, a thousand dues paying members in Seattle DSA. Um, we have like, and we know how to organize around kind of these big, um, as a big org, right? It's not just like 13 um, people or so, which is just a different ballgame to play both good and bad. But we can use that institution, um, I think, for um, kind of like amping up a bit and uh, putting together something that frankly has a little more political risk that maybe some other people would not really want to put their name on. But as Seattle DSA, we can absolutely um, absorb and not just absorb, but lean into it. And so we figured, um, you know, after uh, having our members and who you've had on uh, the show before uh, organized for Spock to get kicked out of the Labor Council, uh, we figured the next action could be to take it up a notch and actually take a march straight to Jenny Durkin's house, which she figured that no one knew and no one ever would know. But um, you know, people know, and we, uh, I guess, eventually did uh, find it. So we were like, okay, this is how we can actually contribute to this movement um, without a support role and actually like put our time, money, energy, everything into this um, that we can. Um, and so we didn't want it to be like a DSA protest necessarily, right? We wanted it to, to be um, a coalition of people that DSA can, um, you know, organize and push together. So, and that was kind of like the vision, I think, us uh, on local council and everyone in our membership were um, thinking of. But, you know, there's a lot of moving parts to this and there's like a lot of risk both to people, and uh, you know, going to the mayor's house and um, just going into a neighborhood that frankly, I don't think has seen a protest um, like that uh, come into that hood at all. Um, that yep. was my first time. Yep coming into that neighborhood period. And I've grown up here. So yeah, um, that was yeah, the, that was the premise and idea um, behind it. Yeah, I think, well, so, yeah. I mean, up to this point, you know, yeah, Jenny released that budget, um, you know, suggesting 5%, which is just 1% more than she was already planning to cut because of uh, sort of pandemic related revenue shortfalls. Um, but, you know, beyond that, she also, she, really hasn't even engaged with or acknowledged the demands of the movement. Um, you know, famously when she was brought out on the city hall steps by, uh, Nikita Oliver, um, absolutely refused to even acknowledge or address, uh, the demands to cut SPD's budget by 50% to reinvest that money in black and brown communities, or even to talk about releasing, and not charging um, protesters. And of course, there's no surprise. They're still arresting people as we talked about this morning um, for exactly that. Like, so, you know, she hasn't even, she's up to this point pretty much counted on not acknowledging, basically denying that these demands exist, denying as much as she can that um, the movement exists, that the organizers making this demand, the organizations denying that they exist, um, and the only the closest she's had to uh, come to acknowledging any of this is when um, the march uh, on City Hall happened and she had to come out and address the crowd. And that's the closest she's had to come. And that's, you know, was she was being uh, her hand was forced there by the mass of people that came out and demanded to see her. And, you know, even after that, she hasn't. So uh, I think it makes 
a ton of sense to just show up at her house. I mean, that's that's what she has uh, sort of left the city with. I mean, mm-hmm. that's all that's left at this point, right? Like in trying to get her to acknowledge any of this is going on. Yeah, uh, absolutely. If you if you think about how long it took for something like this to happen when she's been not only just not engaging, but not even trying to, you know, do any dances or pretend, you know, or give us any hope, like it was actually just like um, straight slaps in the face. I mean, honestly, this was three weeks after she essentially ordered in her and Car- Carmen Best because this is her city it reflects on her. Um, tear gassed a crowd the day that they put a quote-unquote pause to um, using tear gas and flashbangs. Um, and presumably people assume that this 30-day pause that she put was because they kind of ran out and couldn't, there's a, a supply chain issue, um, nothing mm-hmm. to do with morals or anything. Um, yeah. And even even then, uh, you know, people didn't go to her house. And how arrogant can you really be, in my opinion, to think that that is not eventually going to happen if you keep on just trying to stomp the people out um you know who are really requesting very reasonable and frankly like pretty moderate demands um that can be met immediately Mm -hmm. yeah and uh man i i gotta tell you like that neighborhood so we're talking about the windermere neighborhood uh on the uh northeast uh side of seattle waterfront uh neighborhood Mm -hmm. on lake washington i remember coming in into there when we marched down to the end of the block where her house was next to these massive iron gates that beyond which was like this uh, large uh, sylvan glade with overhanging massive trees. And everyone, it took everyone a minute for it all to sink in. Like what the fuck even is this place? (laughs) And it turns out like she lives in a neighborhood in a, in a mansion she built there. Uh, literally right next to a massive park controlled by that neighborhood's HOA, presumably a private park that no one really even was aware existed. That's just this, uh, you know, opulent uh, bit of nature in their neighborhood for them alone. It was quite surreal to be in that neighborhood and walk through it because um, just like a little behind the scenes on organizing this, I mean, organizing something of this um, scale and just like a, required a whole village and it really required um so many different meetings on the um, security how to keep people um safe how to actually uh what would happen if there is um a police line right um what would happen uh you know we had all of these contingency plans but um one of the things that was new and i think <laughs> that i haven't really processed is that we were just all using um you know technology and just like satellites to really kind of like um you know just see the walkways um we didn't physically do like a dry run and like staking out and like walking through. So this was really all of our first times experiencing this in person with everyone else in the protests and just seeing this bizarro, just hidden in plain sight neighborhood and knowing that these are like residents who <laughs> have like a ton of power and a ton of voting power. We saw that when we volunteered, uh, you know, for Sean Scott in district four. Um, and yeah. it was, it's just like totally invisible to the public. And Jenny lives in probably the most invisible part of this invisible place with a private park that no one knew about, which has just like huge, like kind of almost like, like waspy jail like bars um that yeah. you know like it's very kind of hostile in its exclusivity 
Um, but even some people attending the private park were watching uh, people give speeches uh, in front of her house. So, you know, that was it, it was quite surreal to to be there in person and see yeah, just the wild. absurd amount of wealth that was there. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the United States is a very segregated place, right? It's segregated along racial lines, but it's also segregated along class lines, right? And, um, you know, one of the things that I think people in the U.S. really have a hard time understanding is, like, when we talk about inequality, is they never actually go see neighborhoods like this, right? I mean, they're spatially segregated, right? I mean, probably everybody in that march, that was probably the richest neighborhood they ever walked through, right? Uh, you know, uh, it, it, it's good sometimes to expose people to the fact that it's like, no, this is how the wealthy actually live. Like the wealthy isn't the guy down the street from you who has a nice car. Like exactly. we're talking a whole other level. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, Jenny's yeah. property is appraised at what, like 9 million or something? 9 million. And yeah. I just looked up the That's median the... home in that neighborhood is 1.7 million. And that doesn't include, you know, that doesn't include like the value of that private park that they all like collectively must own. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, you know, that when this neighborhood was built, it was not only redlined, meaning, you know, uh, the HOA there is, you know, therefore a descendant of a racial covenant, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so not only are, were uh, non-white people not allowed to own property there or live there, but it was, a, you know, everything, all of North Seattle was uh, a sundown zone where you couldn't, you know, be black uh, after a certain hour of the day and be in a neighborhood like this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's really the point. I, like um, Brian, you really did bring up a good point and showing, I think it was an educational experience for everyone. I hope that it was an educational experience for the residents of Windermere um, to kind of give us, uh, you know, something that's real. We're not just, uh, a soundbite on Camo 4. This is a real movement. And um, yeah. I think for us too, when we talk about the rich and the wealthy and the powerful, and um, it's really easy to abstract that really by design for them. It's by design. It's really um, grotesque to s- actually see it in front of your face. And I think that misleads people saying like, oh yeah, it's the guy in the apartment who has a, you know, a cool, um, Vitamix or something, you know, or yeah, yeah. You're from the the PlayStation capital, right? and the Xbox, like, <laughs> exactly, you know, right? Like, like level they, are, of wealth above they are the bourgeoisie. <laughs> like, no, it's <laughs> a little, a little more. Um, yeah, there's a little more to it than that, and I think that it was really eye-opening for everyone, including myself, involved. Who I think for me, I was emceeing this event the whole time, um, and it was my first time, so I had I was kind of focused on that. But even I had to really just take a moment and um, <laughs> look around, like, wow, this we're actually here. Yeah, and by the way, we Greg mentioned the ra- you know, racial covenants. We will post a link in the show notes to the racial covenant for the Windermere neighborhood, which has some real interesting things in there. Oh, and I gotta cool. say, going through its listing, uh, you would think it still exists today because uh, let's just say the no persons or persons thing. I didn't see any of those people coming out of the house. So, yeah, but, I mean, uh, that you know, interesting. Like to wind to the Windermere neighborhood's credit, um, no psychotic old couples came out with assault rifles to point at us. Okay, Greg, um, I I thought, oh, so, you know, I was checking, you when you're, then this is my experience, right? Because really for everyone involved, even though I think like uh, personally, I think uh, the protest went pretty well. Like this was probably the biggest action I think um, we as DSA have uh, pulled off uh, 
I think, at least like within two years, and I'm sure maybe ever in our history. Um, and it was a lot of first timers, um, actually, especially myself, do like organizing a, a protest like this, especially on this scale. And so, you know, I didn't really, you don't really know how it's um, received until after. And so I checked Twitter, and the first thing that comes up is just this these two people who look like the people who were in Windermere, like one holding an assault rifle, the other like holding mm-hmm. a gun with a finger on the trigger, like totally Pointing looking like a other. like an A twenty four film or something, like a yeah. yeah. from an A twenty four film. Um, <laughs> and I was like, wow, did I was I just like in the zone and just missed this? Like I thought that this was from our yeah. protest. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my god! No, no. When I, I had the exact same reaction when I first saw it on Twitter, I was like, "Holy shit!" Was that from the protest? But I think there's actually, again, I mean, this comes. But back- it was the same kind of thing. Just to be clear, that that video is from uh, St. Louis, mm-hmm. but th- it was the same kind of thing. It was a march being led through an extremely wealthy neighborhood to the mayor's house. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's like so. Yeah, it's a different flavor, but yeah. Yeah. When I think, too, it, it speaks to the, what we talked about earlier about, like, Americans' understanding of sort of class and stuff like that, where the gun couple were personal injury attorneys. I think when you walk through Windermere, I mean, you're talking the level above that. Right? Oh, yeah. Oh, the yeah. people who would not, yeah. they would not muss their very clean hands with holding a gun, right? You know, if they wanted to shoot us, they would hire, you know, some private security firm <laughs> of mercenaries to shoot at us. They would not do it themselves. That would be labor, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. But it was, I mean, it was a, a fascinating walkthrough. And I think one of the things to stress is the importance of going to the mayor's house. So, you know, in St. Louis, they went to the mayor's house. This is a very common tactic to go to the mayor's house and yell at them. Uh, but in the case of Mayor Jenny, she has gone above and beyond to hide everything about her personal life, right? Every She's hidden her net worth. She's hidden her assets, right? Whereas other public officials have, you know, She said, keeps a lot of it in Swiss gold, so you can't get at it, <laughs> even if she's prosecuted in the future. But yeah, whereas a lot of public officials, you know, they, they you know, uh, they, they fill up the paperwork that says, you know, how much money they make, all that kind of stuff. Jenny refuses to do all that stuff. And the reason is she's one of the wealthiest people in the city. And hiding her house was a big part of that. And some of it, I think, was politically expedient for her that, you know, saying, hey, I got $200 million and live in a $9 million house is not a good start to your campaign slogan. Uh, but the other part of it is that uh, I think the wealthy do live in a slight bit of fear uh, that the por- you know, pitchforks might come for him one day. And Jenny is especially paranoid of that shit. So this actually affected her. I mean, this is, I think, it, you know, closely watching everything that's going on in Seattle. This event was the first event that I think actually got to Mayor Jenny. Well, it clearly got to her. Like I said, I, yeah, I think she was up all night last night. Uh, you know, on her lumpy hotel mattress, um, fiddling with the AC, uh, wishing she could crack that window open more than an inch. Like, mm-hmm. because I, I, this is just a guess. I don't think, I don't think they are sleeping at that house. Like, that's how, that's how rattled she is. You know, I mean, that's a, it's a insane to be in a position to be that paranoid about just people knowing where you exist is really, uh, because of your own wealth and power is kind of bizarre, but I, I really think that's where we're at. And that, that represents that this is the first time this movement, these protests have affected Jenny in her life at all. Like up to now she's been able to shrug it off. And now um, we're seeing uh, the, we're seeing her crack basically because um, man, uh, <laughs> she, she, she stayed up in a fever dream. after yeah, the protest. She stayed so. up uh, the other night. And 
like just uh wrote the funniest fucking thing i've ever read this letter to the seattle city council uh demanding they investigate and expel the demon shama <laughs> have you so, read this thing Munya? yeah i i i read it i still haven't really processed it because it was just so just unhinged and like clearly mad and it seemed like it was like written by her like personally i don't know like yes. It can't really confirm it, but it just seemed like just like the writing style and just like the way that it was kind of like, like overtly salty and just, um, mm-hmm. you know, not like she got like an attorney to like, or a PR I, person must to have write like, it. Well, okay. We were just having a little too much fun with that letter Jenny wrote to the city council. Uh, so this episode was just getting too long. If you want to hear... Uh, Brian and I and Munya read through that absolutely deranged insanity. Check it out on the forthcoming Patreon episode. Uh, you know, we'll link for where you can find that. Yeah, uh, we'll wrap it up here. Uh, Munya, did you happen to catch the little video I made using the text of this letter? Oh my God, no. Oh, well, it's first off, it's not a video Greg made. Greg, be serious. It's a press conference that Jenny gave from her bunker. And it's looking, it's looking very bad for her. She looks like she's falling apart. It might be the downfall of the, the Durkin administration. Of the Durkin administration, <laughs> yeah, uh, something like that. Um, we'll put a link to that in the uh, show notes as well, and yeah. we'll send you one, Lydia. <laughs> um, so, uh, Munya, thanks for coming on and uh, hashing this out with us again. You know, thanks and congratulations to you and the other organizers who worked on that march uh, for. Um, what was some of the most fun I've had in the last month mm-hmm. um, m- marching on Jenny's house um, and, you know, th- you know, uh, really just a a long list of really powerful speakers. Um, uh, Anna Hackman spoke who we had on the podcast. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It was the last episode something. Sure. I don't know. Um, of course, uh, other friends of the show like Sean Scott. Um, it was a great time. Congratulations and thank you to everybody who worked on that. Thank you, Munya, for coming on here. First of all, like Greg and Brian, thank you so much for being there. And I totally agree that um, it, it really just felt like um, the, I, I don't want to imply the end, but it was like, the, you know, the end of the Shakespeare play when all of the characters, like the love characters who didn't get murdered, um, you know, mm-hmm. came together. And, um, you know, it was like a, just a big, like, hurrah. And it was so cool. And it, I think one of our aims of this was for it to be fun and for it to be um educational but also something that's like unique and something that we can actually like feel um good about and like um so it was just really awesome seeing y'all there and just like everyone who we've been building with um it was just a it it was it was a beautiful and powerful demonstration so you know uh, protests aren't anything without you know people showing up so really what i want to plug is uh just keep on being in the fight I, I, as a black person, I I have no choice, you know, I, I, I can't, I don't, I don't have a choice to ignore this stuff. Um, but seeing the multiracial, multi-generational, um, solidarity, uh, for this movement has been really moving just on a more like sincere note, um, seeing just the class solidarity, even at the, um, March itself, Jenny Durkin's, the gardeners of Jenny Durkin's neighbors, um, asked, uh, their neighbors if they can set up a water table because um, t- they got tipped off that I guess uh, protesters were coming to 
uh, Jerkins' house, and they knew that that was uh, her house. So uh, those homeowners said, yeah, totally, that's fine. And the gardeners, like, took some time off to, like, actually give us water. And it was just, like, that really touched yeah. me in a unique way. So, um, you know, we're building something special. Really just plug into the fight. Uh, follow Seattle DSA. Follow Decriminalize Seattle. Um, follow the missing um, Indigenous families. And... Um, you know, uh, just uh, stay tapped in because this is really the start. And I think we're onto something really, really powerful here. Yeah, I hope so. I hope this, it does seem like, you know, we're entering a new phase um, this week, starting with that March and now with the uh, dismantling of the chop. And I hope that uh, that new phase continues the amount of action in the streets and starts getting results. Right on. Thanks, everybody. We've got new patrons. Thank you to Joseph, Allen, Leon, Tana, and Corinne. Uh, thanks for, uh, uh, becoming suckers. What do we, do we usually say something? Just thank you. Oh, hey, thanks. what the suckers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thanks for giving us your money and other people out there freeloading. Give us your money. Oh yeah. We also finally just got re-accessed our, um, Patreon <laughs> funds after like a, a long, uh, attempt to do so. So. Uh, we post soon, soon about what, where we're going to be donating some of that. Um, okay, thanks again, everybody. Um, Sorry, this was a long one. Thanks for sticking it out. Um, and thanks, Munya. We'll see you around. Yeah, thanks man. so much, guys. Yeah, hopefully, we'll see you on the boat in the future sometime. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, whether that's on land or sea. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye.